Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Hey, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hey, it's a brief moment of quiet, but it has been loudly raining off and on. You know that we just got done recording an interview and it was... It was uh, biblical. That is a perfect adjective. (laughs) Yes. So we're lucky we have a little bit of quiet right now. Yeah, it looks like the sun is shining right now. But before you were having horizontal rain and tornado sirens and... It was quite the weather. I'm glad I was inside. I was thinking about if there are any campers who were like walking across campus when that hits like <laughs> Oh man. You can't even you can't even run for it. You just <laughs> walk. No, I, you know the worst is when it rains. I don't know if anyone else has experienced this, but like when you're wearing sandals and it rains and then your feet t- start to slide around inside your sandal that's like one of my least favorite feelings in the entire world i actually really really hate that or like when you have closed-toed shoes on but your puppy escapes in the pouring down rain and you're chasing after her for 15 minutes and just wading through a downpour and puddles in your neighborhood and then your socks and your shoes soak up all of the water oh the worst Welcome to Rain Talk, your <laughs> podcast about rain and footwear in the rain. Thanks for tuning in. I'd listen. <laughs> so we had stumbled upon this topic for the last episode, but we have both gotten back into performing, especially you, Jackie, because you really were not performing at all. And I was performing a little bit during the quarantine. Yeah, my university is in a really small town. And it's kind of known as a party school. And so the county was basically like, we don't have the infrastructure to handle an outbreak. So you are not entitled to have students learning in person. And so it was capital V virtual the entire year. Anything I did was pre-recorded. And so I just last week did my first performances back in front of an audience for the first time. And it was wild. I mean, I hadn't performed in front of people for, um, well, I guess it was very early February 2020 was the last time. So almost a year and a half. Wow. Um, And it was actually, it was really interesting because um, I was a little nervous anticipating it because, and I think I've talked about this on the podcast, before I stopped performing for about the year beforehand, I had kind of been on this journey to really address and conquer my performance anxiety and in meditation had found what I believed was the answer for me and was finally hitting my stride those six months before we went into lockdown Mm -hmm. of like, yes, I found the thing that works for me. I feel like I'm performing in a way that's representative of who I am and I am um, mentally and emotionally present in my performing. And so it was kind of like, I don't know, I guess superstitious of like, is it still going to work or mm-hmm. was it too fragile? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Have I lost my magic? Did yeah. I lose my momentum and in the process lost my uh, magic? And so I kind of had that going on mentally 
as I was preparing to be in front of an audience, I was kind of maybe doing like not the kindest self-talk in, it wasn't even about performing. It was like about my strategies for performing. Mm. Um, and I was pretty darn nervous the first time it was on this like kind of faculty variety program and we were last. And so you just kind of sit around anticipating, anticipating, anticipating. <laughs> um, but the performance went really well. And in my mind, I was so like shaky and nervous. And then I watched the live stream back and I was like, that was pretty darn good. I'm happy with that. Yeah. Um, and then we had our faculty quintet for the summer program recital. And yeah, except for maybe a couple little butterflies right at the beginning, I was like, yeah, I'm back. You know, it, I have my tools. I work on my implementum, prepare well, go out there and enjoy what you do. And so I was surprised at how nervous I was the first time back. But I think it's kind of like getting back on a bicycle. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I just got back in it and had so much fun, especially on that second recital. I was just like, yes, we are back. This is awesome. I love that. But it was kind of interesting because at the very at camp orientation, we did like it's a Lutheran affiliated um, camp. And so we sang a, a hymn together. And there were several people who were really emotional because it was the first time they had made music with other people in the same space. And that was really special to just see people experience that type of connection and the emotional magnitude that it held for them. It was just kind of a nice balance to that like nervous, it's all about me, I'm in my brain, to no, it's, it's all about connection and it, it means a lot to our audiences and, and to our colleagues and everything and la la la. <laughs> What about you? Well, I, you know, I kind of have two reactions because on the one hand, I feel like I've been performing here and there, you know, it hasn't been a complete hiatus for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't feel like all that much has changed. But on the other hand, I did a recording session. It was my very first professional recording session that was like four or five days long, like with a quintet. And it was a really exciting opportunity and uh in preparing for it I had like a three-day read freak out like I haven't in years because <laughs> you haven't needed reads in years because I haven't needed reads this good for mm -hmm. years so, <laughs> so I mean I felt like I was taking it in stride but my wife Becky would like to argue <laughs> she was like you need to take it down like 10 notches because I can't handle this because there's like I'm like scraping like crazy there's a cane dust in the air and I'm like screaming at everyone and she's like I cannot handle you I'm gonna go outside like <laughs> that level of like neuroticism and just sheer panic Mm -hmm. I have not experienced in a really, really long time, like pre-quarantine. So I would say that consciously, I'm, it's all same, same, whatever. Uh, subconsciously. <laughs> it manifested itself in your reads. Yeah. We did a call to our listeners because we can't be the only ones just kind of getting back into the swing of things. Although I'm sure more people will uh, have these experiences come the fall. So I'm really curious, you know, once fall rolls around and we start getting uh, more like regular concerts and recitals mm -hmm. and things, how that's going to go for people. Um, but we got some really beautiful, thoughtful opinions on our Instagram this one is from Andrew, and Andrew says, it was a surreal experience, both good and bad. It felt amazing to be in the room with people there to enjoy our performance. On the other hand, I really had to battle feeling the anxiety of having been out for so long and the negative self-talk slash judgment when things weren't feeling as comfortable as they had a year and a half ago. And I think that's spot on. Yeah, for sure. I mean, similarly, Kimberly said it felt unfamiliar yet familiar all at the same time. 
I definitely appreciate it more, but uh, her anxiety came into play mm -hmm. as well. And I don't know, I just think kind of think there's power in speaking these things out loud. Mm -hmm. You know, performance anxiety and negative self-talk can be such an isolating feeling and it like you're not the only one. This is a natural especially for those of us who took significant amounts of time off. This is a natural mm -hmm. way to feel and you, we will ease into it and whatnot, mm -hmm. but you're, you're not alone. And you never were is the other thing. Exactly. Yeah. Well said. All right. Well, it's not raining and I have to walk across this campus. So maybe I should strike while the iron is hot. And how go. are your, are you wearing flip-flops? Are they dry? I am in sandals. And as of right now, they are dry. I'd like to keep it that way. <laughs> Janet Ingle loves the oboe. She has built her business on providing high-quality handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Janet doesn't just do reads either. Look at JanetIngle.com for a selection of read cases, swabs, and tools, or for read making videos, classes, and boot camps. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH for 10% off their first order at JanetIngle.com. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. We are delighted to welcome to Dublery Dish Ruby Ashley, professor in oboe studies at the Royal Irish Academy of Music. Welcome to Dublery Dish. Thank you. We love to start off by getting to know our guests by hearing about how they came to play their instrument. So can you tell us how you started to play the oboe? Um, yeah, it, it was it was quite a journey. I, I was very lucky in that I I was uh, born and brought up in a very small town called Ashby de la Zouche. It was a county in England that had the very first system where every school had peripatetic teachers visiting. And I was given the opportunity, well, we all played the recorder and I hated it and never practiced it. And the one oboe that they had in the school, they, they gave to one of my friends. And I was absolutely disgusted. I thought, ha, and of course, I, I didn't deserve it. I didn't practice the recorder. So I came home and my father was, um, he's a, he had a very extraordinary attitude to education, really. And his he was very strongly felt that, well, as far as he was concerned, his children were all geniuses. I actually think a lot of parents suffer from that. But... Um, <laughs> they, uh, so when I came home and said, I didn't get the oboe, my friend got the oboe. He was, he was, what well, this was not going to happen. So in his, as he had a quite a large jewelry business in a small town, big fish, little sink kind of thing. Um, he had, knew a lot of people and there was an elderly lady who had an oboe in her attic. And she said, Hugh, you take this for Ruby. She can use this. So I got my first oboe free. But the only thing was that it was really cracked. Um, I mean, you could see the cracks in it. Ooh. Now, I didn't know what these were. I just thought, oh, this is a really old oboe. 
So I started trying to blow down this thing. And of course, as the cracks open after a few minutes, it's very yeah. quiet. <laughs> <laughs> My parents thought, oh, this is amazing. Ruby's taken up a very quiet instrument. Anyway, eventually it transpired that they did realize there was something wrong with the oboe. And another friend of my father's said, look, you can have this oboe for 70, well, it it was pounds at the time. So you can have this for 70 pounds. So he bought this oboe for me and it it wasn't great, but it did the job. And then because all our lessons and everything were paid for, we had a peripatetic teacher that came around once a week to give us music lessons. And it was all the woodwind instruments. And I can remember looking at a friend of mine who was learning the clarinet and thinking, well, I'm easy because it's much easier for me because at least the oboe fingerings are like the recorder. I felt I had very little to learn because, you know, I'm 90% there with the fingerings. Anyway, when you were pretty good, you were then joining the Leicestershire School Symphony Orchestra, which was an orchestral system that started off when you were about 10 or 11 years old, you'd go, if you played a wind instrument, you'd join the military band, and uh, which was what I went into. And I, I'm actually an identical twin, and um, my identical twin sister played the clarinet. So we both joined the military band, and we had our very first away course for a whole week. And all we did was rehearse and practice pieces and everything. And I thought this was fantastic. And I found it very hard when I first went into this because everybody seemed so brilliant and and they all knew what they were doing and I didn't. But actually within a couple of years, I, I didn't really want to be in it anymore. And the next orchestra up was the Intermediate Orchestra. So my twin sister went into the Intermediate Orchestra and I was held back because they had enough phobos. And that, that doesn't work with identical twins. You you have to follow each other. Mm-hmm. And I thought, they've let her in because they're short of clarinets and they're not letting me in. So I thought, well, I'm not having this. So I, I went up to um, the director, who was, he was a lovely man, very uh, jolly, a bit, a bit like Father Christmas, actually, but with no hair. <laughs> and um, I went up to him and I said, um, excuse me, Mr. Pinkett, you've just put my sister into the intermediate orchestra and I think I should be in it as well. He looked at me and he said, how old are you? And I said, I'm 10 and a half. A half was very important. And, and he said, well, can you play a chromatic scale? And I said, yes. So he said, so play one. So I played a chromatic scale and he said, you're in. <laughs> so that was fantastic. I was, I was in the... Um, I was in the orchestra and, and, and that was where I wanted to be. But after that orchestra, you went into the senior orchestra. Now, the senior orchestra was um, an orchestra where we did television programs, we, we did professional recordings, we worked a lot with Andre Previn. We, wow. had, we had amazing people. And, you know, we didn't pay a penny for wow. any, which was just as well because my parents weren't loaded with money. But when I think about it now, that that was that was incredible. And uh, Andre Previn, we were at the time because it was the very first county to actually have an orchestra and to promote music in such a way. And it was a very working class area. There was a lot of coal mining, and there was a lot of uh, a lot of people that wouldn't have had the money to pay for lessons and instruments and have all of those opportunities if it hadn't been provided. But that system. Um, has been taken up along the way by by different counties, but I don't believe that any of it is now free. It didn't survive. No, I mean we did tours. We went abroad. We did mm. tours, and not a penny. We didn't pay a penny. Nothing. It's such a great way to combat the inherent classism, and that's what I hate. That is what I really hate because I've. I had a very strange start to my musical life because although I loved Mr. Neil, he eventually disappeared. Um, he probably retired and I was supplied with another teacher and I won't, I won't mention her name because she's a composer and she's quite well known, um, but she was absolutely horrible. She was so horrible to me. She used to smack my fingers with a ruler if I got the notes wrong on my scales. Oh my goodness. Uh, I mean, she was just, uh, she wasn't an oboe player. And I think when I, I think she must have been unhappy anyway, I, I, I stopped going to the lessons, of course, because you wouldn't go to them. 
And Eric Pinkett, he knew that, um, I don't know, he must have seen something in me, and I'm certainly not being big-headed, but he, he obviously saw something, probably saw spirits. I'm not sure if he saw talent. <laughs> he, he, arranged, he arranged for me to do an audition for Janet Craxton, and um, she accepted me as a student, as a private student at the age of 14. Amazing. And all my lessons and all my travel was paid for. And once a fortnight, my mother would drive 120 miles uh, so that I could have a lesson with Janet. And, and that, was, that was when I began to really learn the oboe because I hadn't really up to then, I was teaching myself. And the only thing I'd been studying up to then was the piano and singing. And um, I was doing all the singing grades, which I absolutely loved. And I remember when I was about 12 years old, I wanted to do vibrato because I'd heard other oboe players doing vibrato, but nobody was telling me how to do it. And so I just copied. I copied what I would do when I was singing. And um, I found the only way I could get it to work was actually by using my abdominal muscles. But then because of all the singing, you begin you begin to get a vibration in the throat quite naturally. So when I went to Janet, that was about the only thing that I was doing right. <laughs> because <laughs> she changed, she changed just about everything. But she was, so, I, I mean, I heard Nick Daniels talking about her. She was the most wonderful lady. She was so calm. And if you did something and she didn't like it, she'd just say, oh, dear. And then you'd say, oh, right, I'm going to fix that. I always felt, I always felt with, with Janet that um, she was, I had her on a pedestal because to me she was just a queen. Well, she's a legend. Yeah. And she had a cat called Costo. And Costo used to go around her neck sometimes when she was teaching. Which, <laughs> oh. And she was an um, absolutely magic lady, absolutely magic. But she, um, I always felt when she, she would set me one thing, like she would say, I remember the lesson when she told me I had to change my hand position. She said, it's like you're catching the oboe in both hands and that's your hand position and you slide your fingers back. Oh. And, oh. and God made me very, very tall, but unfortunately he gave me a very small little finger so it was even more important to have my fingers square on. I couldn't, I couldn't get away with angling my hand at all. So I remember that when she did that, I thought, better have that sorted two weeks time. I always <laughs> felt like that. I sort that for two weeks. And then it was the whole, the mouse position, all right. Well, of course, that takes longer than two weeks. Um, and, and the whole breathing thing, I mean, that's always, that's always there. The engine of playing the oboe is the breathing, isn't it? So until I had Janet, I, I wasn't really terribly lucky. But I, I, I chose the oboe because my father, once I'd said that I wanted to play the oboe, we went to a concert by the Leicestershire School Symphony Orchestra in the De Montfort Hall. And then suddenly the oboe gave the A. And my father said that I looked at him and said, I'm going to do that. And that was when I decided to play the oboe and I just adored the sound. I felt it was the nearest to the human voice that any instrument could be. And I know people say it's the violin, but that's rubbish. It's the oboe. <laughs> it's in your mouth. It's, it's actually part of you. It's your voice box. It's thing. Mm -hmm. So um, that was my start on, on it, on my journey on the oboe anyway. What led you to decide to become a professional oboist? Could you lead us through your training and educational journey? Well, I suppose if I, if I was being really honest, we, we have to, at some point in our lives, we have to think, I'm going to have to earn some money. Right. Before I went to college, um, there was a lot of competition between myself and, and my twin sister. And music was the one thing that I felt I was absolutely brilliant at compared to her now you have to understand this is not this is not a high bar but, <laughs> uh, and by which time she played the double bass and I just and and the whole you see the the whole thing with the Leicestershire's uh, schools orchestra was that it was like a professional orchestra it just gave me such a, a taste of of where you could go and I didn't want to study anything else. I just didn't want to. 
And I think I felt that music was one area that I could really excel at and I could make it. I never considered doing anything else until I was about 22. And then I decided, oh, this is all getting a bit difficult. And so I decided to go to, um, I went to Leicester University to do, uh, they did a kind of survey of your perfect career. And I thought, well, I'll just I'll just double check this. I'll go to the university and I'll do this and it should come out professional musician. So I did I did the survey. I answered all the questions, my qualifications and what I wanted out of a job. And you'll never guess what my ideal job was. It was it was merchant banker. Oh my god, that's so different. I know. And I thought Oh, I think they got that algorithm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't. I, I, I went to I went to the Royal Northern in the end, but I did continue having lessons with her. Though I ha- I ha- I was assigned Sonia Rangham at the at the Royal Northern, but I still used to go to Janet as well. So I was very very happy there, and uh, the opportunities that were afforded me there. I remember winning the concerto prize, and that that was fantastic. And my my uh, my father, who was always worried, he he always wanted us to take sensible jobs and and do things that would be very, very secure. But Mummy said that when he came to that concert and saw me walking out in this this pink evening dress carrying my oboe, I think he was very proud. Oh. And then when I, while I was at the Royal Northern, because we never, we didn't have money. So I always was aware that I had to make sure that I had money. So we had the grant system that gave me money, all the money I needed for accommodation and paid my fees in England. And I thought, right, well, I'll apply for scholarships to study. So I applied for a German government scholarship. I don't know if you've heard of them, Deutsche Akademische Austauschstie mm-hmm. Scholarship. Mm-hmm. So I applied for one of those and fortunately I got one. And the the previous summer I'd been touring with a wind octet and we had gone to a place called Hitzacker where they, they have a fantastic chamber music course. And I'd met and I'd heard of the most incredible performance of the Prokofiev Quintet for oboe, clarinet, viola, violin and double bass and the most amazing oboe player. And uh, Michael Schubert, I think his name was, and and he was terribly good looking, which I think always helps, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Beauty is currency always. Always. Well, I said I. I thought I have to meet this oboist. He was absolutely incredible. I mean, that slow movement where you you've got to be terribly clever with your breathing or double breathe. You know, all low notes. I mean, it, his playing was fantastic. So I met him afterwards, and uh, well, he told me that he'd been he double breathed through that bit anyway, and then which I found really interesting. I wanted to know all about this, and um, because nobody talked about that with me ever. And I asked him who he was studying with, and he said he, he said he was studying with Helmut Vinschman. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. Mm-hmm. He, he was um, he started an orchestra in Germany called the Deutsche Baroque Soloisten Orchestra, German Bach soloists. And I worked with them actually as as their principal oboe when I was over there. Um, basically, it was a, a freelance orchestra, but always used the same players, and you played Bach. We did the Bach Suites. I mean, it, and and Vinchman was a, a fantastic oboe player. And I decided that if this was the oboe teacher that um, that Michael had, then I wanted to meet him. But anyway, I, I decided that I had to meet this teacher because part of the German government scholarship is that that you 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 have to be accepted by the teacher. So I thought, well, he's not going to accept me if he's not met me. So I have to go over there. And so I went, uh, I I booked myself a flight to Detmold. Well, it was actually to, to Hamburg and then you get a train to Detmold. And um, I'd never flown before. I hadn't ever been on an airplane. Wow. And um, I had a big overdraft as well. 
<laughs> I booked the flight and then I told my father that I booked the flight and, and it wasn't cheap. It was hundreds. It cost so much money then to fly. Anyway, so um, I booked this flight. And it was terribly exciting. I didn't tell anybody at the college and I was supposed to be playing principal oboe in the college orchestra. I can't even remember what the program was. But I thought, I have to go now, because if I don't go now, I'm going to not be able to go, because he wasn't there all the time. Like most professors, he might be there for two weeks, and then he'd be away a month and all this sort of stuff. So I thought, right, I have to go. Um, I hadn't thought about where I was going to stay, nothing. I just had to get there. So I found the flight so exciting, and I got to Hamburg, and uh, then I had to get myself to the railway station, and then I realised, actually, Ruby, you don't speak any German. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to get a train to get me to Detmold. And I couldn't, I couldn't actually understand. I kept seeing the word Detmold and going to the platform, and and I always seemed to miss the train. And then I realised I was looking at arrivals and not departures. Oh no! <laughs> Eventually, I did eventually get on that that train, and I I remember it. I don't know what time I thought it was, but I I got there early afternoon, and found my way to the uh, Nordwest Deutsche Music Academy, which is the most amazing complex, beautiful buildings, and I went up this very long hill to get into the place where the all the woodwind rooms were, and uh, and I I just walked in. <laughs> When I think of it now, it's unbelievable. I just walked in and he, all the classes were open classes and the students were very international. I mean, there'd be all kinds of, loads of different nationalities there. And I just walked in and he looked at me and I said, I just said, I've just come over from England and I want to study with you next year. And that was it. And he just... <laughs> looked at me and and i was i don't know how i had the confidence to do it i had youthful confidence and he I, I just sat down and and then he said right you stand up and play and i think i did the bots of fantasy pastoral huh? um which which is just a good showpiece it shows just about everything you need to show and uh and he just he just said you're accepted and that was it. And then, and then he said, um, and do you have anywhere to stay? And I said, well, no. Uh, and he said, um, well, I, I can put you up. And then, and then one of the students in the class said, who, whose name was Katrine, she said, Ruby can stay with me. And oh. she, she had an apartment. I'd never met these people before. If my daughters told me they were going to get on a plane to another country that didn't know where they were going to stay or anything else, I wouldn't be letting them go. I mean, <laughs> but I didn't tell anybody. I told nobody. I didn't even tell my father until I, after I was back. Oh, my God. Apparently, while I wasn't in, well, because I didn't turn up for the college orchestra rehearsals and everybody wanted to know where I was, there was a, there was a lot of anger about it. You know, the you know, heads of department, that sort of thing. You shouldn't behave like that. Only when I came back and they and I told them that Benjamin had accepted me, um, they weren't quite so cross. And then of course when I got <laughs> when I got when I was awarded the German government scholarship, then because there are there's only two given in the whole of Great Britain. And actually that year both of them went to the Royal Northern. The other one went to a bassoon player called Mike Duffin. So, um, so I think they they didn't mind quite so much there. So off I went to Germany, and and that was that was a fantastic time. But then when I was in Germany, I started to worry. Now I stayed longer than my German government scholarship. I worked for a bit with the orchestra, um, but then I I decided I didn't want to. If I you if you stay in a country, there comes there comes a point where you think right. I'm, uh, I didn't want to live there. I just didn't want, it wasn't the country that I wanted to be in. Um, my father hadn't been well. He'd had another heart attack. My father had five heart attacks Ooh. from when I was age nine years old. Anyway, I wanted to come back because I knew that that, um, that daddy wasn't very well. But the funny thing was that I, I came back from Germany and I went to Goldsmiths University to, University to take part in the... Um, 
the orchestra from uh, orchestral studies it was called and it was an orchestra that was formed by postgraduate students and and i decided to do this before going to america i got another grant i i talked to my um, director of music and education i had to i had to perform to him and that wouldn't happen now I, he gave me my audition in his bedroom <laughs> anyway so i mean he there was no problems i i just <laughs> got the over out and played and i got another i got another grant which was another that was five years of of mm. being fully funded by my local authority so I got that grant and I went to London to do the orchestral studies. And, um, but unfortunately, during that year, my father died. Oh. Very suddenly, actually. I just started sharing an, a flat with a trumpet player called Gareth. Now, we weren't boyfriend and girlfriend. It was just accommodation for the, for the college in, in Greenwich. And I was out doing rehearsals all day. And when I got back, it was about 11 o'clock at night. And Gareth said to me, I'd only been in the in, on this course for three weeks, and Gareth said to me, "What did you do? What did you do?" I said, "Well, what do you mean?" And he said, "The police have been round for you three times," and I thought, "Well, why?" Um, because we didn't have mobile phones, and the, the phone in our flat wasn't connected. Oh. And it was the he said, "Well, twice it was a policeman and a police woman came round, and the next time it was just a police woman." And he said that he got so worried the third time they came because he didn't know me very well. He said, what's she done? He thought that I'd been shoplifting or something. And, <laughs> and they said, they told him then that my father had, had um, died very suddenly of a heart attack. So it was Gareth who told me them uh, about my father. But there was a big mix up then with grants and money and everything. And basically, I just didn't have any money at all. So I kind of survived that year, but I did an audition for um, for RTE here in, in Ireland. And um, so I ended up coming over here. I finished college and I came over here, here the next day. I just drove over and I came over for a year and I'm still here. I would love to hear more about your studies with Ray Still. He is such a huge well, titan. Yeah, he wrote. He wrote me. I, I actually never went to America because because the the year that I was in Goldsmiths would have been would have been another year before I took up the Rotary Cup scholarship because that's two years in advance, and I had to earn money. I had no money, and I just had to earn it. And um, I decided when I got the um, the opportunity to come, you know, to, to work for RTE, to come over to RTE, um, I decided that I it was time I did because by then I, I had been studying for over six years, and I I just had I just had to earn money, and if I'd gone to America, I would have had my scholarship, but I wouldn't have been actually able to professionally play because I'm not an American citizen. Right. Right. So, I, that, so which was a disappointment because he said he was so looking forward to me going there and I was looking forward to it. But, you know, life is timing. Sometimes you get opportunities and they, they just don't work out. And I came over to Ireland and, and I mean, it, it's the place that gave, it's the place that to start off with gave me an awful lot of laughter. So, um, and the Irish are absolutely magic. I mean, they are wonderful. So I never, I, I, I never did study with, with Ray Still. I came here. Speaking of magic and opportunity and fun and laughter, you played in the band, The Water Boys. And I just need to hear more about that. For the Americans who are listening, would you please tell us a little bit more about the Water Boys and uh, their role across oh, the yeah, pond? Yeah. Well, the the the, the 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 I'll tell you the story of how I actually got the gig because um, I think sometimes I feel my my musical knowledge is terribly limited, and and this was one of those occasions. I was I was actually watching the television and sitting on the floor with one of my daughters and I got this phone call and uh, this voice said uh, it's it's Mike Scott and I said um, pardon he said it's Mike Scott of the Water Boys we want you in our band 
and I I said, uh, excuse me. I said, I, I actually thought it was one of my friends being silly. So I said, uh, I, uh, you'll have to excuse me, but I'm, I'm not quite sure who you are. And he started singing, this is the whole of the moon down, down the phone. This is the whole of the moon. You know, a, you'll have to listen to it. It's very, it kind of made them that song. And then I thought, oh, oh like, oh, right. And I said, oh. <laughs> I have heard that song. This this is really proper. So I said, gosh, I, I think I'd be very interested. It sounds very interesting. And he started talking to me. Um, it was a new show called Appointment with Mr. Yates. And they wanted Oboe and Coronglay. I actually played Oboe, Coronglay and Oboe de Moray in the show um, in the end. But he, he said... Um, I said, well, you know, discussing the usual things. What, what, what is the fee, and where are we going, and and um, what? I, I said, what's the dress code? <laughs> Which was so naive because, of course, there isn't one. I said, <laughs> Do I have to wear all black, or is this I you know, formal? I, I actually said, is it long black? Which, and he was so, pun, and I said, well, he said. And then he said, Ruby, you'll be on the stage. Because I just take, I mean, I've spent my life being in a pit. pit. (laughs) So it it was completely different. And and I said, uh, and when I said dress code, uh, he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, long black. And he said, whatever you like. He said, (laughs) anything. So I said, so I actually, a bit naughty. I said to him, is black leather okay? And he said, "Great." So <laughs> preferable. It's preferable. It was. It was a complete, completely different world. When I when I went into the first rehearsal, uh, I didn't know anybody. Everybody's oh god, they're all very they're fantastic musicians, but in a different area of music, and they have a different way of talking. And um, I was standing there, and I think it was a little bit of a test, actually. Um, there was, I think, I think there was twenty-one numbers. It was either twenty-one or twenty-two numbers, and I had to memorize them all because you had to be on the stage with just your oboe and your instruments in front of you. And um, and the hard thing about the memorizing was that actually because. Uh, you had to listen to the music over and over and over again to know that that riff came eight times before you come in and you play, play this. It, it's a very re- repetitive type of thing. The music itself isn't hard. It was just the fact that it, it's not like memorizing a concerto or, or a sonata where it goes into your, you're singing it in your head. You, you know it mm-hmm. and your fingers. It, it was a kind of different way of working. Um, but in the first rehearsal, we played something, and oh, the first thing was everybody was going on about mobile phones, and uh, don't even have it on silent. Turn it off; it interferes with the speakers. Mike goes mad. It was like, mustn't make Mike mad, you know? So everybody had their phones off because it interfered with the speakers. And then I'm standing there, and we're playing one of the numbers, and I can't remember the name now. And he stopped, and he said, "No, Ruby, I want you to do it like this, not like that." And we did it again. He said, can't you hear it? Can't you hear it? No, like this. And he made me do it about six times and saying, oh, it's getting a bit better. Do it again. Do it again. And I, I, they all sounded the same to me. But <laughs> I, I, know, I know now that actually what he was doing, he's a charming man, but what he was actually doing was saying, I just want you to know that you're working for me and you will do it like I want it. He was putting a stamp on it mm-hmm. type of thing. But they, they, I remember when we were doing a balance and they, they kept talking about wedges and I didn't know what they were talking about because, but I didn't want to look like I didn't know what they were talking about. In the end, I just had to ask somebody. I asked one of the, the, the stagehands because the only wedges I was familiar with were shoes. Right. <laughs> and, but it's not. It, it's a massive speaker. They refer to the speakers as wedges. Hmm. And I'd never heard that. I mean, I know some of the recordings speak from when you're doing sessions and stuff, but 
I have to tell you a funny story in one of the one of the we had sound checks for every show that were three or four hours long. Um, Mike Scott was a complete perfectionist, and that and that's why his stuff is so good. Um, and we were we were going over and over and over stuff. And the guy that was doing that was doing the sound, um, I'm kind of Paul Kyo, I think his name was. Um, he said, you know, I don't I don't understand how in the rehearsals we always get a lot of you because they they you know they adjust the microphones and and you're standing just there. And he said we get plenty of you in every single sound check. And then the show comes and we can't hear enough of you. And I just looked at him and said, Yeah, but for the show I'm wearing high boots with four inch heels. So I'm four inches away from the microphone. <laughs> I mean, I, he hadn't realised, and I hadn't thought about it. And that was why, because um, Mike Scott liked us all to be kind of zanily dressed. Uh-huh. And I had these over-the-knee boots with really high, it made me about six foot one, because I'm five foot ten. So they were like really big high heels. <laughs> So it was, to play, <laughs> standing in yeah, these. Yeah, but you see, it, it wasn't. I can't play in heels. I it, the music was not like playing a concerto. It was a different, completely different world. I've never walked in in all my years working, doing gigs in various orchestras and opera orchestras and all, all the rest of it. I have never walked in to a dressing room. There was only three women in the band, so his dressing room was just for us with a fridge full of a selection of beers and wines mm. and a countertop with fruit, loads of different um, greens. I don't know if you get greens chocolate. It's an organic chocolate. All Loads of greens chocolate, biscuits. It, it was like an Aladdin's cave of goodies. <laughs> I have never, ever walked into and And the way that we were treated like queens, um, and the staff, and and I mean, I can I remember one of the one of the guys that was one of the roadies. He said, "Oh, I think you're getting used to this, Ruby, this rock chick thing." I I mean, coming out from shows, coming out the stage door, and the first time somebody came up and said, uh, "Can I have your autograph?" and I went, "Me." <laughs> <laughs> What? So it, You're it like, was I'm a- the oboe player. Are you sure you don't want that guy? Um, yeah, it was it was a completely different world. And I just wish in this country that classical musicians were valued more because we we've been having since since two thousand and eight things have really hmm. become much harder. Um when I I was when I more or less stopped working with the orchestra. I more or less stopped working with the orchestra in two, in ninety one, um, and I left to take up a position. Um, I'm sure you've heard Christa Berg. You know the name Christa Berg. He's he's a very well. He look him up. He's he he he's the guy who sang the song Lady in Red. I don't know. If oh, you've okay, yeah. yeah. Well, he owned a school. He and uh, Aravon School. And there, and I took up a position there in '91 to to as as head of music there, and I ran three mini marathons to buy instruments and all kinds of stuff. And I was there for 20 years, but it was a perfect position for me because my three daughters were young. I didn't have to tour, but I could tour if I wanted to when my husband wasn't touring. Mm-hmm. So I could do. I had. The security of having the job at Aravon, which was a fantastic place to work, um, but I could go off and do loads and loads of different things. And that was when I was, it was after that, way after, that, it was during my time that I was still head of music. I did the Water Boys and I did Wexford and the Irish Chamber Orchestra. I did that. Um, I, I played principal over in that. And I, I did loads and loads of of very varied work that it wouldn't have been quite as varied if I'd been doing the same job mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. So I, I found, I found that the first gig that I did with the, of the appointment with Mr. Yates show, I'd spent the day rehearsing the Bach B minor mass. And then I had to rush off to the Abbey theater, get on all the leather gear and, and go and do a, 
a water boy's cake. It, it was like black to white. It, it, I love that. You know, it was so varied. But 2008, um, with the financial crash here, uh, a lot of the groups that had existed that uh, that employed freelance musicians for music, for concerts they wanted to put on, they started to use the orchestras because the our RTE used a lot of advertising. So the managers started to, um, I don't really know how to say it, but they, the gig scene disappeared because the gigs began to go to the orchestras, whereas the orchestras would never have done them before, but they needed the work as well. So, and then, uh, so we haven't, so a lot of, I mean, I'm still busy doing chamber music and lots of other things, but it has, the whole scene has changed a lot here. And now with COVID, we've actually been locked down for 15 months. We haven't, all the tours that I had organized, I started working um, in the Irish Symphony Orchestra as Principal Oboe, um, which I loved, we were doing um, tours with films where you have a live orchestra and you have the film in the background or in front of you. Um, But of course, none of the venues are open. So everything, everything has stopped. We did one, um, there was a a keyhole of time over Christmas. I'm not even sure if it was much as two weeks. And we did a, a, a live stream concert which was one of the most miserable experiences of my life. I absolutely hated it. We had to record in a, in a church with, it was freezing cold, all the doors open and, um, and social distancing. And as you're walking in, it's just a horrible feeling. I don't know if you've, if you've gone through it, you're, you're walking in and everybody's going and, and you're not allowed to sit near to anybody and all the string players are masked up and, and I got so cold, and I just, I just, I just hated it. And we did a chamber music concert when there was a tiny keyhole that was open. But we've been virtually shut down completely since uh, the fifteenth of March last year. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's, it's a long time. Still. Yep, still, they've started. Um, I teach Stephen Donnelly, our health minister. I teach his his three sons, and. Um, uh, absolutely wonderful man, wonderful man, and um, gorgeous children as well. But um, he, they, he, they're they're running a, a kind of pilot to see. I'm not actually sure what the experiment is, but the Limerick Concert Hall is going to be opened for a concert. So I suppose it could be with social distancing. They'll allow a certain number of people in. I, they're just very aware of making sure that the figures are kept down all the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I, I, I'm, I can't, I find it very hard to understand that the horse racing um, is going ahead. The cinemas are going to open. The pubs are going to be opening next week, but none of the theatres. We did one concert in a small theatre. I can't even remember now if it was the beginning, beginning of January, I think, because we shut down again. We were unlocked for about 10 days over Christmas. And then uh, all the figures went up, so it was closed again. I can't even remember if we were closed before the new year. I think we were closed down again before the new year. And um, we did one concert in a in a theatre that just a small local theatre, and only seventy guests were allowed in. And the problem with that is that you're not making any money. I mean, you, we don't play music to become multimillionaires anyway, but you've still got to put bread and butter on the table and you can't you can't make money because you can't suddenly say there's only 70 of you so we're going to charge you twice as much you know you you can't say that and children my my students in in the academy have suffered because they haven't had any performing groups at all i've arranged zoom classes and things but um they that's it and all the read making i mean i started i did a master's in music in 2008 and I started a reed making business called Ruby Reads. <laughs> it's a bit it's a bit geeky isn't it I wrote a book about reeds actually but um uh because I find it I find it absolutely fascinating it's your whole voice box it's sure. absolutely it's absolutely everything 
Um, so, and nobody ever taught me really how to make reads. I, I learned just by watching and, and listening and experimenting. But um, I supply them to some professionals here and a lot of the students as well, which is enough. I don't want to advertise, I, you know, I don't want to advertise and find that I'm making 100 reads a week or something. I think I might lose my brain even more than <laughs> I, I couldn't do that. But um, I do I do think it's it's a major part of, of playing the oboe. But it has to be done. Everything has to be done with humour. So it's all quite a learning, quite a learning journey. But I have, um, I have had some very happy times with my students. I mean, I'm back teaching one to one now. But um, I was thinking when I go back, the academy is going through a big building project at the moment. Um, about 23 million is being spent on we're going to have the most fantastic building with every single um, facility you could possibly want. Um, but at the moment, it's it, we can only use one part of the building. And so one day a week, I, I have to teach elsewhere because there just aren't enough rooms. But when I get my room, I'm going to put big signs up on the wall and it's going to say laughter. That's the first thing I'm going to say, because I think children learn much more beneficially when they're laughing and when they're happy. A thousand percent. What we we have to we have to understand and know that even with third level students, the percentage that make it successfully are very small. And so everything that we do, that one of the most important things that we are doing by teaching and by loving what we're doing and, and hoping that other people enjoy it as well, is we're creating our audiences for the future for the people that actually may end up in some financial job and they, yes, they might give you a few thousand when you need it. You've, that's the foundation. You're, you're building on a love of music all the time. Mm -hmm. The people that come to do it and earn a living are a tiny percentage of the that's people right. who love it. And I think that generally in teaching that, I mean, I, I've, I've, I'm, I'm not criticizing anybody I've listened to, but to be perfectly honest, I don't think that you grab somebody's love by telling them to do this book of studies and that book of studies and that book of studies. What I do is, yes, they still have to do studies, but I do it in a different way. And um, I mean, I, I don't have a, 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 a well, there's the, the number of students that, that learn. Obviously, Ireland's a very small country. Well, I think the population might be nearly five million it's tiny com compared to anything you have but i changed first thing i did was i changed completely changed the oboe syllabus and i put in a whole load of jazz studies Ooh. jazz pieces pieces that you can do with a cd for your own enjoyment although you can't do it in obviously you can't use the cd in the exam but we have a very prestigious music competition here called the fesh kill and i sit on the um I don't know what you call it. I suppose it's not it's not the board or it's on a panel mm -hmm. of other musicians who set the set works for this competition. And it gives the it gives young performers opportunities to perform with the orchestra, to get money, to study all kinds of things. And so I I, I chose two pieces this year. And one of the pieces was an unaccompanied piece in a book called FX for Oboe, and it's called Latin 8, this piece, and it's with a CD, but you can't use the CD in the first kill. But it's a really fun piece. Ooh, so I want to learn it. You're just getting more people, more people wanting to go into the competition. The more people that enter the competition, the better the competition is. There's no point in setting a piece that's ferociously hard that right. nobody wants to do. The, guy, the idea is always to show what somebody can do. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens some people can do it better, of course. But the two two books that I am using so much now, one of them is very aptly named The Good Tempered Oboe. Ooh. And and it's by I think it's you're gonna laugh at this, it's published by Itchy Fingers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing this down. And and the other book, which I think is fantastic, is called FX for Oboe. And it's by, I think, yeah, I think it's by David Gale. Now, in the, in not the, the FX books 
isn't particularly hard. The Good Tempered Oboe book has things in, has studies where you have to swing, mm. where you have to le learn jazz techniques, where you're bending notes, when you're, you know, when you see the straight line and it's like a glissando, it's got all mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And the later studies are very hard. But they're fun. And I find, like, I, I've been told recently that I've got a little girl of eight years old who's going to start the oboe with me. Yay! I, I think the first thing she has to do is just love the pieces she's doing. Yes. You know, and then I use the other thing which nobody's mentioned in any of, of the... Um, I haven't listened to all of them, but the recordings, that visualisation... I think visualization in learning is terribly important. How when 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 people when my not such nice teacher and actually other teachers as well. I had classes with all kinds of people. Um, Leon Goosens was the most incredible guy. Wow. I was I'd only been playing about the oboe for about six months when I played to him. He he was a, a giant of personality, but such a gentleman. But. Everybody would say to me, you must support your breathing. And this confused me. If I said to you, are you supporting yourself? You would go, yes, of course I'm sitting down or I'm leaning. You, you, that word, I don't know why it's used, but it does not equate. You, I can't equate that to, um, I just can't equate it to, to breathing. So I... I don't, I don't, I don't use that word at all. I never say support your breathing. Mm -hmm. I say push as if you're on the loo. And then just to show them, because everybody goes on about speed of air. Well, I mean, if somebody tells you you've got to blow very hard, that's still something that means a different thing to everybody, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So what I do is I put a 50 euro note on the wall and I say to them, you hold that there for 10 seconds, you can keep it. Then they'll blow. Then <laughs> and then you can say you didn't manage it. So your airflow, while very good while you were trying, has to get better. And that they don't forget that because suddenly they understand what you mean by more, more air. Mm -hmm. You've got to give, you have to give people something visual. Mm -hmm. something that they're not going to forget and I use that and I use sense of humor in my lessons a lot mm -hmm. um, yeah. and different and different breathe and lots of different breathing exercises that are fun but I'm yeah. big into the health I think health is terribly important I think young young people are not moving as much as they should they sit in front of computer screens too often mm -hmm. and I think that you know I think swimming is pretty fantastic mm -hmm. for your breathing and singing always sing everything we do when we play music everything is singing absolutely everything is singing and and from the day that you have a new student from the very first lesson the most important thing I get them to learn to do is to hum while they're making a sound on the reed have Ooh, you ever done no Oh my God. Every, anybody who's, I've listened to people talking about opening up the sinuses. Have you ever tried to do that? Doctors no. have to give you an operation to do that. Oh. How on earth? It doesn't make sense. And I heard, I heard a fantastic oboe player saying that. That makes no sense. Anat and anatomically nonsense. You can know I fought my way up, can't you? Because I'm just I'm writing that one down too. Hum. You, wow. you cannot physically open up your sinuses unless you hum. So you you play a note on the oboe and you hum in your throat at the same time. And the first thing that happens is your throat doubles in size and everything opens. And all you're doing is humming. And as soon as a student can do that, they won't have any problem with vibrato. Because vibrato, while it begins low down here, Eventually, it resonates in exactly the same way as when you sing. You can feel the vibration in your throat. Mm -hmm. And you, you'll never have that horrible, wide vibrato sound that some people have. You won't have it because it's just it's a, it's a natural growth from here. And that comes from singing. 
Singing and swimming are the two things I think every oboist should do. I swam for the county team at home and I won the national diving. (laughs) You are my favorite person in the entire world. (laughs) Ruby, Ashley, thank you so, so much for joining us today on Double Read Dish. This has been just such a wonderful time spent talking about your journey and what's important in oboe playing. And I'm going to go hum on my read. Thank you for joining us for that episode. And as always, for listening, if you want to um, hit us up, you can do that on social media. If you want to listen more, you can do that anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you want to join our consortium, you can do that at our website, doubleredish.com. Galit, who are we going to have for the next episode? We have a wonderful interview with New Zealand bassoonist Ben Hoadley. Uh, can't wait to share that one with you. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Uh, Go make reads. (laughs) But don't freak out. Exactly.